The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when, I said, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words and he shall, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, so that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the, a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken, spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Ends the reading of God's word. So this summer, I've decided to take us on an interesting journey in our sermons. I'm going to be preaching from what's called the Book of the Twelve, sometimes also called the Minor Prophets. They're these little books that you have not probably heard of or done very much with. They're called minor not because they're not important, but just because they're small. You look at a book like Isaiah, uh, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, you get these big prophetic books, but, but these books are small. In fact, some of them, we're going to just read the whole book in the, the, in the course of the sermon. And so throughout the summer, and with some breaks and pauses in there, we're going to keep coming back through what this set of what's called the Book of the Twelve. In fact, in the early church and, and throughout Jewish history, they've talked about this as kind of one book, one set of books. And so throughout the summer, and during different weeks, there'll be one of these books every time. But... I've come to realize as a pastor that our biblical literacy is sort of down, that we don't always know what uh, is going on in the Bible and how all these things work. And so today I want to give kind of an intro. I want to give an intro to the Old Testament because even a lot of us that do know the Bible, some, we primarily know the Gospels or some of Paul's stuff, we're not as strong in the Old Testament. And I need to especially today give you an introduction to prophets and what prophets do because a lot of times what we think about as prophecy today is not what the Bible means by prophecy. Uh, to help you with this, in your bulletin there's a, a sheet that says the book of the twelve. You'll be able to follow along a little bit in that, uh, but I just gave you a visual to be able to think about or make notes on for later. Uh, those same things will be up on the screen, so you'll be able to keep track of where we are. So let's start with an intro to the Old Testament. First of all, you need to know, you need to always think when you read your Bible, that the Bible is not one book. The Bible is not something that somebody sat down and said, hey, I'm going to write from one part to the next part, the whole thing. The Bible is a collection of books. It's really a library. 
There are different themes, there are different perspectives, there are all kinds of things going on between all these different authors written over a long period of time. Particularly when we talk about the Old Testament. The New Testament comes around in you know, an 80 to 100 year time frame. It's not very long after the birth of Jesus and after the death of Jesus that we get the New Testament. But the Old Testament is written over a long period, a long history of, uh, of Israel. In fact, in taking classes on Hebrew, uh, Greek, you could get a kind of, if you ever studied Greek, I had to, you get a pretty good understanding of Greek because the Greek doesn't change that much in the time the Bible's written. But Hebrew, you can study Hebrew for a couple years. I had to do it for a whole year. And I could read a little bit of Hebrew, but then I could turn to certain chapters in, or certain books of the Bible, and I wouldn't know any of the vocabulary. Because it was written from a time period that's a lot older, and I don't know any of that Hebrew. Um, it's a very long period. So we have a New Testament and an Old Testament in our Bible. That's generally how it's lined up. The New Testament starts with Jesus. The Old Testament is stuff prior to Jesus. The Old Testament is set up into uh, some groups of books, too. There's generally what's called the law at the beginning. Um, so you can flip the next one. You have generally the law, which is those first five books. If you go to read those, those are a lot of stories, by the way. They're not just laws. It's the story of the law. It's the story of how we got the law. It's the law in context. Um, you get sort of this set of history, Joshua through Esther. Uh, and most of those are stories, again, some teaching. You get poetry, which are, are books of poems and of songs, of liturgy that, that Jewish people use. And then you get this huge section called prophecy. And you can see in the, in the diagram there that it has uh, the book of the 12 listed all in red. And, and those were counted often as one book, the book of the 12, or simply called the 12. Now this uh, Old Testament is often called Tanakh in Hebrew. And Tanakh isn't actually a word. It's a combination of three words. The Torah, which is the word for law. The Nebi'im, which is the, which is the word for prophets. Okay, Nebi'im is simply the, the Hebrew word for prophets. And the Kethuvim, which just means writing. Okay, so you get these sort of sets. Now you'll notice that the Old Testament doesn't have these in this order. Okay, but this is the understanding of the, the Jewish scriptures. That you have primarily, and that's why there's this sort of bullseye here. The, the core of the Old Testament is the Torah. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the center. Secondarily to that, you have the Nevi'im. Those are the prophets. Those are the ones who interpret the Torah. Now, this is interesting for most of us because a lot of these books we don't think of as prophetic books. Okay, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Uh, and then you get what would be the more typical prophetic books. Um, but the understanding is that there are prophets in those books. That Joshua acts as a prophet, that the judges act as prophets, uh, so on and so forth. The Ketuvim are the writings, and those are of third importance. Does everybody see that? In the Old Testament, there's this core, there's a secondary, and there's a third. In the early church, the New Testament reads the same way. The core is the Gospels. Paul's letters are primarily interpreted, and then we've got a lot of other writings that interpret that. That's a big picture of the Old Testament. Now, on the back of your sheet, 
There's this great little timeline. I found this online. An Old Testament timeline. Now, a lot of these dates are debated um, about when exactly historically things happen and also when some of the writings happen. So I'm going to ask you, I didn't even really look too much at the dates. I wasn't too worried about the dates. What I wanted is the big picture overview of the Old Testament. Um, I know there's a lot of detail. There's a little bit more like a class. But you want to understand prophets, you've got to understand where they fit. You understand where they fit. Okay. In this big picture understanding, uh, and again, don't worry about the dates. The chronology is the most important. We have creation. We have the calling of this man, Abraham, who's called to go out and claim a land and start a people, which Abraham does. Although if you remember how the story tracks several generations later, uh, one of his uh, great, great, I don't know, grandchildren, Joseph, gets sold into to slavery and ends up in Egypt, which ends up saving the family, ends up being a, fam- a famine in that area. So the family ends up in Egypt to survive the famine. But after a couple of generations, these people are growing and growing and growing. They end up being crushed into slavery, pressed into slavery by the Pharaoh. Okay, So we have these people, they get their land, they end up in Egypt, and then once they're in Egypt, they end up slaves there comes along this man named Moses. God calls him up to lead them out into the desert for 40 years. And then they begin what's called the conquest. That's where they go in and they take out these people. Moses doesn't get to go do that. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Raises up a man named Joshua. Joshua ends up leading them into the promised land. Um, They go through all this conquest, but they have a problem. And you can really see this spelled out in the Old Testament because it it becomes a big deal. When they go to kick everybody out of the promised land, they don't do it. They let a bunch of people stick around. And they press people for their land, but they don't end up uh, finishing the job. They don't take the land fully as they are. And this causes all kinds of problems because these other countries, these other nations get stronger. And they also worship their own God. And Israel has a tendency to not worship the God they're supposed to, but worship all of these other gods. This happens multiple times where uh, another nation kind of gets involved with Israel and then takes them over. Then there are these people called the judges. And the judges come in and act sort of like prophets and sort of like kings to, to get them out of that. People like Gideon, people like Deborah, who come in and get these people uh, out and save the people, but they never quite get it. I mean, they never quite finish the job. And so this happens again and again and again. Finally, later in Israel's history, uh, they decide they want to have a king. God suggests to them this is not a good idea, that what they're trying to do is copy everybody around them. But they do it anyway. And you get um, uh, Saul, then you get David. You get Solomon, and then sometime a couple generations after Solomon, you start to see these divisions. As Solomon has kids, um, there gets to be a power struggle in the kingship of Israel. That's what you have these books, Samuel, and you have the books of kings that sort of lay out the history of how this all happens. And eventually the land is divided. Okay, Uh, And this gets confusing in the Old Testament because the north part of Israel is called Israel. And the south is often called Judah. So sometimes in the prophets you'll hear them talk about Israel and then talk about Judah. But Israel is the name of the north. Kind of depends on when that is. Because Israel is divided, they're weaker. 
So they end up getting attacked more because they're divided instead of standing strong together. At first, the north is taken away by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in, take over the north, what was called Israel, and the south eventually gets taken over by the Babylonians, who are sort of like the next generation of the Assyrians. Hey, everybody with me so far? They finally return. Generations later, they get their land back. They rebuild the temple. There's 300 years of silence. Um, and then you get uh, Jesus being born and a whole new thing taking place. Everybody understand me so far? Now, this is important because you have to understand, to understand prophets, and that's what we really are trying to get at today. You've got to understand them both uh, in their literal context and their historical context. Okay? In the literal context, the prophets are about interpreting the Torah. They speak for God and continue the message. In their historical context, it greatly depends what the prophets do. Okay, some of the prophets, a lot of the minor prophets are written at the time of the divided kingdom where you can see them listed generally on this, on this list here. Um, some of them are in the period of the king. Some of them are in the exile. Some of them come around after the exile. And that means the message gets very different. All right, so let's, divide, let's dive into what prophets do. No matter what their context, what's the big deal about prophets? We tend, when we talk about prophecy, to think of future telling, right? That's, that's one of the words. You're being very prophetic. You're saying what's going to happen next. Or we tend to use the word prophet also related to social justice, as if uh, what a prophet does is sort of speak out against injustices in the world. We get that from people like Martin Luther King, Jr., who, by the way, quotes extensively, even in his public speeches, from the minor prophets. This is where his biblical basis really is. But, but prophecy in the Bible is different than that. In fact, there are a lot of prophets that don't do any future telling. A lot of prophets that don't do anything close to social justice uh, the way we think of it today. In fact, we already saw that Moses is listed as a prophet. In fact, listen to this from Deuteronomy 34. This is at the death of Moses. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. See, Moses in the Old Testament is the epitome of what a prophet is. And we don't often think of Moses as a prophet. Because he doesn't do any future telling. He doesn't really do anything with social justice. So what does Moses do? Uh, besides the fact that Moses is, is a strange character, think about all the other prophets. Elijah, who's this sort of wild and isolated prophet. We're going to learn about Amos, who has this strong social conscience. Deborah, who is this wise governor. We even have female prophets in the Old Testament. Jews and Gentiles act as prophets. Um, so what does a prophet do? What are the traits of a prophet? Number one, uh, and there's a list here, but I'm just kind of running through. Some of these will take a little more time on than others. Prophets, first of all, were close to God. 
They were expected to have some kind of line, some kind of closeness, some kind of relationship with God where they were interacting with and talking to God. They spent time with God and had access to God. They had God's personal cell phone number, right? Okay, whereas not everybody could talk to God or hear from God. Prophets could. They could speak with God. Moses is considered the greatest because he could speak face to face. They were expected to bring a message from the Lord. We see this in some of the language of the prophets. That they, the prophets would stand up and they'd say, Thus saith the Lord. They had this message, right? When they spoke, it wasn't just them speaking. It was God speaking through them. In fact, the language that's often used of prophets, and we already read it here this morning, is that God put his words in their mouth. God put his words in their mouth. Very interesting phrase. Here's the heart of what it means to be a prophet. Well, the heart of what it means to be a prophet is, is not future telling. It's not social justice. It's really a, prophets are, are people of worldview. They're people of lenses like glasses. And the prophets look at the world and they, they look at situations and they, they try to look at it from God's perspective. And they say, no, no, no. The way we're thinking about this is wrong. The way we're thinking about this is wrong. God's perspective on this is different. It's said of Moses that it took 40 days for him to get the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt, and 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. It took 40 years for them to stop thinking like slaves and start thinking like God's people. And that's the big thing Moses fights against again and again and again. No, no, no. We don't need a golden calf. We need to live our lives differently because of what God has done for us. This is what prophets ultimately do. They critique the dominant views and action of their day in light of God. Sometimes that means interpreting the past. Sometimes that means predicting the future. Sometimes it means questioning how people are treated in their time. But it's ultimately a matter of glasses, of perspective. Sometimes prophets had vision. Particularly southern prophets, the, the people who are in Judah, the prophets from, the, from Judah, the southern part of Israel, um, they tend to have visions. They tend to get caught up and see things in the Lord. That's how they thought of it. Zechariah 1 through 4, for example, Zechariah is caught up in this vision, seeing Israel restored to its land and its place and its worship. Sometimes prophets emphasize the word, a word from the Lord. Northern prophets have this sense. Northern prophets don't tend to have visions. They tend to think of a word, a message that they have to deliver. In fact, Jeremiah 15, he says, uh, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. That Jeremiah's metaphor is, I, the Lord gave me words and I ate them. I took them in, I made them mine, and now my words are the Lord's words. Anointed, sometimes they emphasize a call story. Amos says this in Amos chapter 7. I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. He's a shepherd and a farmer. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Isaiah has uh, reference to his anointing, his calling, this vision he gets caught up in. Prophets were led by the Spirit. They don't do it on their own. In fact, the prophets are often hesitant. Think of Moses, right? 
talking to this burning bush. You want me to do what? I can't do that. That's, that's often prophets. Prophets aren't really excited about what they do. They're led by the Spirit to do something. The phrase that's used of Elijah and many of the prophets is the hand of the Lord was upon them. Or that the Spirit lifted them up. Now not all prophets were listed, uh, were listening to the Spirit. There were also false prophets, right? False prophets. Micah has some great things to say about he In the book of Micah, he sort of makes fun of false prophets. He says uh, of them, he says, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. And he said that would be a preacher for this people, right? What you really want is a preacher that's going to preach wine and strong drink to you. Or he talks about prophets who would, say, who would cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Right? So Micah has this sense that some prophets are not good. They're standing for themselves. They're not really speaking for the Lord. They're speaking out of their own need. But what's the test of a prophet if their words come true? Sometimes prophets are asked to have symbolic action. They're supposed to live what they're going to do. Jeremiah buys a plot of land as a sign that someday Israel's going to go back to its place, go back to its land. We're going to learn next week about Hosea, who marries an unfaithful woman to represent Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Uh, he, He lives that. And then he names his children. This happens several times for prophets. They name their children based on the plight of Israel in that moment. Prophets are often rejected, right? They weren't liked. There's a point where Jezebel, Jezebel was a queen, and she was known for killing prophets. And so there's a couple of different scenes where prophets are on the run. Or one particular scene in 1 Kings 18 where there's a hundred prophets that are living in caves so that Jezebel doesn't come and kill them. Jesus says in Luke 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, oh, sorry, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Prophets were not liked. Prophets were not popular. They spoke what people needed to hear, but not what they wanted to hear. Prophets gave international and war advice. Often they were, they were called on in times of diplomacy. So you go to the prophets and you say, what does God want us to do in this moment? And so the prophets often had to sacrifice and call on God in those moments. And it wasn't always good. First Kings 22, 400 prophets advised to attack, but there's one guy named Micaiah, who says, no, 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 the Lord says you should not attack. And the king does attack and ends up dead. And they end up losing the battle because 400 prophets told the king what he wanted to hear. And one prophet ended up saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Prophets were often called for international needs. And they, they were often in prophetic schools. They were often in groups. Prophets worked in, in there's some lone prophets, but a lot of times... Prophets were trained at winning families and winning groups. This becomes a problem, though, because you could make a living as a prophet. You could be in the king's uh, court and, and be there to ready to give prophecies for the king. But, of course, there's this problem. Are you going to give the king the message they want to hear since they're writing the checks? Or are you going to tell them what God really says? This has been more of a teaching sermon than an inspirational sermon, but, but I needed to set this up for you just a little bit. And I do think there are a couple practical things to take away from this. Number one, you need to think about this. 
when, when you look at this description of prophets, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. Okay, he has an anointing story. It's his baptism. He has spends time with God. He speaks for God and as God. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He speaks all the time of this kingdom. That's this way of thinking about the world that's not the dominant view. Um, he has great symbolic action like miracles and washing the disciples' feet. He's even rejected and killed in Jerusalem, which is where he makes the claim that that's what happens to prophets in Jerusalem. You go back and read the Gospel of Matthew with this list of what prophets do, you're going to find an amazing connection because Matthew in particular wants to say that Jesus is the new Moses. It's part of his underlying argument. Jesus answers so much of what the prophets are looking forward to. He's the answer to all these prophecies. So that's why a lot of times the prophets end up prophesying stuff that comes true in Jesus. Because Jesus fulfills the problems in this world that they're seeing. But I also want you to think about prophets because I think we live in a world that needs prophetic voices. Do you think this world really acts like the way it should if God is truly God? I don't think so. I think there's a reason why a person like Martin Luther King Jr. would read the Minor Prophets and use those in his speeches. Because they have something to say about our world now. Do we care about the poor in the midst of our amazing wealth? Do we even see ourselves as wealthy because compared to the world we are? Has our religion become stagnant the way the prophets often speak against Israel? Instead of being a genuine relationship with God? Have we put our hope in political strength and national politics instead of God? That one's going to be a tricky one over this, this summer. Right? This is a week where somebody, re- somebody got out of the election. It looks like we're seeing the candidates we're going to end up voting on for president. And oh my goodness, some people think that this is the greatest thing ever, right? That we have the heroes and they're going to save the day. And some people are like buying property in Canada to move, right? I got news for you. As Christians, our hope is not in our political structure. This is exactly what Israel thought in the Old Testament. We're going to hope in our kings. No, we don't hope in our kings. We hope in something else. We pray for our kings. We don't hope in them. See, I think over the next, this summer, you're going to realize these Old Testament prophets have a lot to say, not just to Israel. They have a lot to say to us today. It's my hope that as you think about them in their biblical context, you're going to start to understand them much, much better. Um, I hope it's going to be a fun and special journey. I took a class on the Minor Prophets, and I've been looking forward to preaching them since I started preaching. And uh, we're going to do it this summer and see how it goes. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us through the prophets, so that we would learn what it means to be your people in this time. Critique the way we think so that we would be truly your people. In Jesus' name, amen.